Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben. This is Tony LaGreca, and this is The Courage to Hope. And tonight's special guest is Michael J. Kane. And Michael is a gentleman that I met at the grief conference in Framingham back in October. And he has um, a lot to talk about. He's got a very interesting story, a sad story, and, a, and he's doing better stories kind of thing. So, Michael, welcome. Thank you, Tony. Glad to be here. Right. So let's kind of go back and and you know, <clears throat> check out your, your origin, you know, in the beginning of your life. Where, where did you grow up? I grew up in Charlestown, the mean streets of Charlestown. Okay. So was Charlestown like, like that says in the movie? Oh, absolutely. And then some, Tony, you know, uh, and, not these days, born and raised and I still reside there. There's a big difference, but I'll, obviously I'll get into what I grew up around at some point. Well, we'll let's let's start there before we go too far. Let's let's get an idea of your background so we can we know where you came from and how and where you are now. Okay, so I mean, just a sick kid from a sick family growing up in that sick neighborhood that you spoke of, Charlestown, you know. And we were famous for a lot of things. I think we're in the Guinness Book of World Records for most barrooms per capita most, you know, uh, car thefts, you know, most bank robberies, armored car robberies. Uh, and again, you know, I'm circling 60. So I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and that's what a lot of my friends were doing. Most people where I grew up, I mean, I'm a recovering project rat, as well as a, uh, you know, recovering alcoholic and drug addict. And I grew up in a single family home, you know, mom was too busy working. So my friends were my family and, you know, and, and so again, um, you know, no direction, untreated alcoholism addiction and potentially a little mental health mixed up in there. And I grew up in the Archie Bunker generation. So, you know, Charlestown was an all white Irish Catholic neighborhood. I believe there were one or two families, you know, black families in the entire neighborhood, but other than that, all white, white, you know, so, um, Tony, I didn't know what I didn't know, you know, I, I never would have imagined that I would go from Boston Latin to Boston State pre-release in the end, you know, uh, mine's a story of, again, drugs and alcohol, petty crimes, assault and battery with one, you, you know what case I'm speaking of, uh, mixed yep. in, and, and um, you know, again, I can elaborate on that at some point if you'd like, but um, no direction. I just simply didn't know what I didn't know and never understanding how a package so tiny could have so much control over my entire life. You know, so, uh, I'm somebody who unfortunately, even with a 3.9 grade point average spent over 15 years in prison, you know, as a result of my addiction, um, and so I guess, you know, it sounds like you wanted to know, you know. Well, what age did you start drinking? I'd probably say around 13, 14, you know, which was a typical age back in my neighborhood. I remember smoking my first joint of marijuana in St. Catharines of Charlestown, you know, in the eighth grade. Um, you know, gateway drug or not, you know, or I know I knew eventually where that the road it took me down so to speak. Um, a lot of these drugs weren't allowed in my neighborhood back in the day. You know, I've, I mean, 70s and 80s were, you know, a lot of the old gangsters, so to speak, wouldn't allow those drugs in the neighborhood, you know, at, at some point. But, um, but when they did, eventually, I just found my way using them, you know, and, and then you know, the disease 
began to call the shots in my life, you know, for a long period of time. You were in high, you were in high school at Boston Latin? That's where I began, you know. I, I Again, Tony, I, I did remember taking the SAT tests, and I remember circling a lot of Cs. So maybe it was a good day for, you know, the letter C on that SAT test because, again, I, I, I remember clearly I was out drinking the entire night before. SAT tests were done on a Saturday, and lo and behold, I passed. Um, of course, I never completed. When I got there, I'm scratching my head as to how I ended up there because it was a little more advanced than I could deal with, you know. So I made my rounds. I ended up at, at a Catholic high school that actually went under. It went bankrupt, St. Mary's in Cambridge. Um, but, yeah, you know, in the end, I ended up going through, you know, my education was completed uh, per the Department of Correction. So now you now you're a teenager and you somewhere along the way you get arrested. What crime were you committing? So Tony, a lot of my crimes were simply drug possessions, assault and batteries. Um, there were a handful of larceny of motor vehicles. You know, would break into would break into the BMWs um, because no one at Charleston owned a BMW. If they did. They were probably labeled as a toonie, even though we wouldn't, you know, do a number two in our backyard. So, I mean, we'd probably go on the outskirts of Charlestown or Boston. We'd hit the parking garages and steal the car stereos out of them. So, yeah, most of my charges were assault and batteries, drug possessions, and loss of a motor vehicle. Yeah, so you were just with the wrong crowd at that time, right? You Pretty much. You say know? that you didn't commit the crime, and that was, they considered that a... A hate crime. You got involved so, in yeah. a hate crime. So that was what I was alluding to. So, uh, you know, and it it's funny you mention it because you and I had touched on what I'm getting ready to go into. This crime we're speaking of. The charges were actual civil, were actually labeled civil rights violations. Now, I want to remind you again that, you know, Charleston was an all right neighborhood. We had these two individuals with an African-American intern come to a, a sandwich shop that we all hung in front of. The name of it was The Godfather. You know, it was owned by a couple of wise guys in Charlestown. And, uh, you know, I hear the N-word, which was popular course back in the day. And then I see a flash in the corner of my eye. And they have a couple of young kids at the corner say that they, fired, they, they, they just shot at them. It turns, it turns out it was one of the other kids in the corner that fired a flare gun at, you know, this particular DJ, his son, and an intern, you know, an African-American intern that happened to be with, with them. Now, again, I was there. I led the charge to go after their VN, you know, which time kids along the way were picking up rocks, bricks, and everything, and throwing them at the van. You know, eventually, you know, this DJ was struck, uh, struck in the face by one of the, the bricks that were thrown at him, crashed into a curb, you know, it wasn't the crash that hurt him. It was one of the bricks that hit him. It split him open. I remember he was driven to the outskirts of Charlestown by one of the community officers, and the community officer just let him, you know, and said, listen, go get yourself stitched up and sent us on our way. You know, fast forward a few days, I see Harry Ray come down on me, and next thing you know, old Jed's a millionaire and being charged with, you know, several counts of civil rights violations, assault and battery, and everything else. And again... I'm guilty of everything in my entire record, except for this particular case. What, what year was that? This was 1985, when I was 19 years old. That's okay. 21, actually. I just had to do the math. I'm old. So, yeah. All right. And so you were found guilty? I actually pled guilty, Tony, because I had several other charges pending, drug possessions, uh, you know, Something else, I remember being in the Child Street Jail. I remember taking a lie detector test that was funded by the state. Everything I told the truth on come up as a lie. And the few lies that I told come up as the truth. You know, so, I mean, the cards were stacked against me. Poor kid, you know, from a poor neighborhood. Couldn't pay for legal counsel. And, yeah, you know, and I didn't know where this interview was going to go or this story. But, you know, uh, in hindsight, when I look back on it, I mean... It was, I, I pled out to a 10-year conquered 
And at that time, you only had to do 10% of your sentence, which was one year. I already had already awaited that time, the old Child Street Jail. So I would have you know, been immediately eligible for parole. As it turns out with that 10 conquered, I gave them you know, over five years of my life just for being a drug addict. Back when, you know, that was a crime to be a drug addict. You know, and I'll get into the work that I'm doing now and how things are completely different. But yeah, just for dirty errands and stuff of that nature, no new charges. Five, a little over five years, again, just for being a drug addict that couldn't pass a urine test, you know. And at the time, what kind of drug were you on? So back then, it was alcohol. It was benzos, you know, valiums, um, maybe powder cocaine. My addiction progressed. And, of course, in the end, it became, it became you know, IV heroin, heroin use, crack, and everything else. When you got into what prison were you in? I was all over, Tony. I, oh, you I didn't stay in one. Yeah. I toured I toured the East Coast, you know, I you know, from Concord to Bridgewater to Norfolk, you know, and a few other house corrections scattered in between. Why do they move you around so much? It's just the way it goes. You get classified from one place and you know, you actually can actually pick from a few and, and I would generally go, you know, based on the convenience of my family or services that were provided while incarcerated, you know, and that, and that was big to me. Of course, I went on to get my education while I was inside and, and took advantage of services to the best of my ability without realizing, Tony, that, you know, and again, I speak from experience that, uh, you know, I can walk out of there with the best of intentions, you know, but again, with untreated alcoholism and addiction, I never really completely understood what I was up against, you know, and in this day and age, there are services. I was actually allowed to speak on some of the work that I do, and I actually, part of my job description as a BHGI, BHGI stands for Behavioral Health Justice Involved Navigator, along with, you know, being a recovery coach, I work with individuals releasing into the community. You know, I try to link them to services, provide them with immediate support, cell phones, bus passes. But our role is to set them up with mental health providers and, you know, substance use evaluations, residential treatment, outpatient treatment. So, again, I say that because things are changing, you know, and I've been in this line of work for the Gavin Foundation for the past 10 years. And I've, you know, been a part of the pioneering on some things. And one thing I want to speak of in particular, I know I'm all over the place, but of course, you know, pump the brakes on me if you have to. But um, I think of the time when I got the call about my son. You know, my son passed from a fetal overdose in 2015. Okay, um, just to back a little, back up a little bit about him. The kid was gifted. Okay, now all of our kids are perfect. But I can, you know, honestly tell you that my son was extremely talented, you know, and, and even in grade school, I knew how well he performed, you know, to Charlestown Papuana that, you know, he could be an asset to any high school. <clears throat> so, you know, I spoke to a state representative at the time um, out of Charlestown to get my son into the school that wasn't in his region. So technically, he wasn't even allowed to go there. So, you know, as it turns out, you know, his first two years of being on this team, this team, which was never ranked, you know, they never had a winning season. Season, he, um, You know, he's making plays. So, you know, my son was in the Herald and the Globe a total of 41 times, you know, all scholastic. You know, he did, did extremely well. And, I, you know, there is, there is a point to all this, Tony, is that, like, eventually, you know, he broke his back playing high school football, okay? Uh, he started spending a lot of this, you know, when he broke his back, he's in the hospital with a body cast, you know, and they told him he missed too much school, that he wouldn't be able to graduate, wouldn't be able to make it to his prom, you know, this is all this stuff he was looking forward to. So eventually he started spending a lot of time, in the, you know, in, in my bathroom 
as it turns out, you know, chopping up his pain medication. You know, this was back during the oxycodone, you know, oxycotton epidemic. And um, so, yeah, you know what I mean? He's sniffing his medication. Um, my son eventually went on to, you know, to get sober. Um, he went on to play in the Shriners Burns All-Star game. He was pegged by... This was after his broken back? After his broken back, they told him he'd never be able to walk the same again. They told him, you know, forget about football. My son came back. He went into treatment. He not only played football again, he took his team to the Super Bowl, made the game, you know, made the game saving tackle, made the game winning touchdown, threw the game winning touchdown, uh, you know, played in Gillette Stadium. Um, again, he had this disease, the Oxycontins, that he never what, really What high school did he play for? Um, I'm going to try to see the exact name. Maybe I won't see the whole, not these regional vocational Metro tech high school in Wakefield. Um, okay. You know, sounds I mean, good. Yeah. And can I ask you, can we put in, let's put a name to your son. What is oh, his yeah. first name? Well, same as mine, Michael Kane. Michael. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm also known around the streets of Charleston and over here with the Gavin foundation is Smokey, you know, also known as, so. We, we know that. Yeah. So, um, Smokey, um, were you were you married after you got out of prison and had this no. child, or was this from a girlfriend, or how was this? No, it was from a long-term common-law wife. I guess you would call okay. it. Was with his mom forever. We never te technically tied the knot, you know. Um, but yeah, you know, um, my son never completely addressed this disease. Eventually, it led to heroin. He had this pain, this back injury. So when he couldn't get his prescriptions, it moved on to heroin, you know. Uh, never did heroin before in his life. First time he overdosed, it killed him. You know, and I bring this story up, Tony, because this is part of the way, you know, the change. The change, in, you know, in addiction and recovery. Um, where my son was prescribed Suboxone at the time which is also can be labeled as a pain reliever, some of these medically assisted treatments. Um, yeah. But because he had missed an appointment, a prior appointment or whatever it was, you know, insurance issue, he couldn't fill his prescription. He, he actually went to the health center, spoke to a doctor who eventually cried at my son's wake. I'm getting emotional just thinking about it saying that he wished that there was something that he could he could do and he couldn't because his hands were tied he was bound by his own limitations as to what he could do at the time and you know nowadays when i spoke of that pioneering and the changes that are being made nowadays there are things called bridge prescriptions if you want to get on medically assisted treatment there is nothing getting in your way you know i mean you can walk in same day and get prescribed this treatment that my son wasn't allowed to as a matter of fact you know even um Narcan wasn't readily as readily available you know most most first responders didn't carry it back in 2015 or at least on the neighborhood that my son died in you know so no, they didn't they didn't it was too difficult to obtain and they usually only gave it to the paramedics and not to the police officers Correct. The fire department. So, uh, yeah. yeah, my you know, my son died in 2014. So we're we're in the same same era there, and there was probably a at least a five minute wait before somebody showed up with the Narcan, and that was way too long. And you know, I I knew nothing about it back then, but I know a tremendous amount now. And for those people that aren't aware, Suboxidin and bupropamine are a drug that's called, when Michael said MAT, a medically assisted treatment. It's actually a law that went into effect about two years ago. And it was actually passed on Christmas Eve and signed by President Biden at the time. And I went kind of under the radar, which was good because at, at that time, each doctor that was allowed to do bupropamine was only allowed to have two patients. And now it's, it's an unlimited number of patients. 
And in fact, if you want to become a uh, a doctor that prescribes suboxidin, you can actually get a, do a class, and the government will pay for it. And so there's a lot of things that happen in today that you know we as parents who have lost children, we put a lot of pressure on on the legislative branches around the country to get different things changed and get things done. And um, this is one of the reasons why we're talking about this right now is so that parents have an awareness of what their options are. A lot of people don't know what their options are. A lot of them go to the methadone approach. And that's actually what killed my son was methadone. He was on going to a methadone clinic, couldn't get there every day. They were telling him he had to be there between 6 and 8.30 in the morning. And uh, eventually he found a doctor who would give him a prescription. But the doctor never ran any of the tests. So he eventually he died in an acute overdose of methadone, which was the thing that was supposed to be saving him. And it's again, it's still an opioid. And it's a limited time only kind of opioid, not, not a forever opioid. Some people take it for a long time, but they're on small doses and it keeps them from robbing drugstores and banks and, and, and stealing credit cards from their neighbor and so forth. So it's this, there's positives to it without a doubt, you know? Absolutely. Um, and I'd like to add Tony that, you know, when I said I didn't know what I didn't know, neither did they, you know? So, you know, when some of these changes, are made as a result of people like you and I losing our children, you know, and, and if you think about back then, you know, the mindset back then, and, and even to this day, it's still stigmatized. You know, a lot of people still put it on a moral level, you know, but, you know, in light of these state opioid response grants and Purdue Pharma, you know, lawsuits and everything, they're moving in a different direction. Or at least they're doing their best. I mean, I, 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 again, I've seen changes. What I had mentioned about, you know, you know, what both of our children had to experience on their medically assisted treatment, you know, and what these providers were up against at the time. And that's where, you know, that's where we come in. We tried to break down the barriers. You know, I'd like to add, and I don't say this to toot my own horn, although I'm proud of it, you know, is that I was actually hired as one of the state's first five recovery coaches. Now, you know, say what you want, Tony, but, you know, we're hired based on lived experience, based on what we went through. That's pretty much our resume. So I'm getting a paycheck for being, you know, an addict in recovery. And, and um, none of this stuff happened. You know, who better to assist somebody than somebody who's been there? somebody who's already been down that hole, you know, um, and, and, and it's trial and error, you know, I, I, again, you know, with, with the Gavin foundation just started working at base level, you know, going into detoxes and see us in holding facilities and providing services there, you know, and, and, and so every agency is different in the sense of what they're doing to curb, prevent, you know, uh, spread awareness to do whatever they can to, you know, to take on this, this horrible disease that they claim the lives of, of our children, yours and mine. You know? Could you tell me in a little more detail, the Gavin Foundation, what it is, where they located, how many people are involved and what's so, their, 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 uh, their, you know, what is, what are they trying to accomplish? So, you know, and I want to speak off the record here. You know, their president, Mr. John McGann, is a phenomenal guy. He's someone in recovery himself, so he cares. He cares deeply. The board members, they're all pretty much in recovery, and they get it. But Gavin is one of the biggest providers in Massachusetts in regards to recovery support and addiction services. They have a broad range of services they provide, you know intensive outpatient counseling. They have several residential programs, you know, in inpatient facilities, you know, where you can stay for several months and work on your disease. Um, you know, substance use, mental health evaluations, uh, 
the list is endless. You know, they have detox. They do have a a uh, clinical stabilization services, which is a CSS, a holding a facility post detox. You know, where you would wait until you get into a residential or until you began your outpatient services. But parenting groups, you know, the list is endless with the services they provide. So who funds it? A lot of a lot of the funding are done on grants. Some of the grants that I spoke of, you know, state opioid response grants. A lot of it's um, donations, Tony. You know, volunteer. I mean, so where I'm stationed, I'm stationed out of a recovery center. It's called the Divine Recovery Center in South Boston. It's member driven. So in other words, the members make the decisions. The members have their own board, you know, and we basically just cater to them and their decisions. You know, it's a place where they can come. They got nowhere to go, you know, and, and tap into resources, employment, um, whatever they're looking for. Just a hot meal, uh, you know, uh, you know, resume building, whatever type of support we can steer them in that direction. Housing support, the, you know, whatever it is. It's not a facility with beds per se. Not at the Divine Recovery Center, no. That's not there, gap. no. Yeah. You get them into places where they have the beds. Yeah, we'd send them right up the street to the Gavin House, the Charleston House, Hamilton House, or one of our residential programs. Send them into deeds again. The, you know the from soup to nuts, Tony. In form, you know, in terms of recovery and addiction, we can. We can Can they get in if they don't have insurance? Of course, yeah. Through BCS. Know, you know, our role would to get would be to get them insurance, but yes, there are state funded beds as well. You know, okay. Work I just wanted to add is BHGI. You know, that's again, that's working with people recently released or any form of justice involvement. We would tap them into the mayor's office of returning citizens. You know, we tap them into resources that people are just generally unaware of. You know, you know today. I, from the men that I've talked to that have recently been just got out of prison, uh, they said getting a job wasn't the problem anymore. The problem was getting housing and finding a place where they could fill out a Corey report and, and get approved, you know, or fill out a credit app. And, you know, most landlords, you know, are reluctant to rent an apartment to a to an ex-prisoner. Uh, and and unfortunately, Tony, we were in Charlestown, you know, the old YMCA was the same kind of building. And, you know, the people are up in, up in arms about having, you know, and these are homeless veterans serving the homeless veteran population. You know, even they, whether, whether there's substance use involved. I mean, um, but again, it's that it's it's that old stigmatism where, you know, trying to get these services, because, again, we do. It's not easy, but we will tap them into places that will provide, you know, rapid rehousing through Homestyle. It's just one that comes to my mind, you know, that that will. I mean, it's 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 a process, but it's available to them. You know, I, again, people returning people with with the disease of addiction, you know, are, are eligible for a slew of services, Tony, and that's what we come in to try to provide them, or at least you know, link them to these, to these particular services. Okay. Um, let's go back a little bit. Um, you know, I met you on a, uh, on a committee that was, it was how do men deal with grief? And let's talk about the, the grief when your son passed away, um, your state of mind and how did long did it take you to get to where you are today? You know, and, and how did you cope with this? Oh, man, Tony, where do I begin? I'm still coping with it, obviously. I mean, it's yeah, been we, we know it's never going to go away. It's just that we, we, learned to, we learned to deal with it somehow. We don't have any choice. Yeah. I, I know what I did early on. I know that there was no outlets, you know. And when you say how do men deal with grief, I think of the way his mother's grieving, you know, and and. and and how she has to completely shut down the day before, the day of, and the day after a holiday. She's completely, you know, lost. You know what I mean? Caught up in her own grief. And 
Tony, I just have to keep replaying the words as cold as this may sound is that death is life, you know, and, and, and again, how do I, how do I do my son proud? You know, so what I personally did is I created a grief group in Charlestown. You know, Charlestown at one point, again, per capita, we're only a mile, one square mile town, had, you know, had the most overdose I can. I, I don't want to throw something out there that I'm not completely sure of, but I, I can tell you, for instance, just last, this past summer, we had five, over, five overdose deaths in one, in one month period of time. You know, again, a once square mile town. One of them just so happened to be my cousin. You know, and, and unfortunately, that old, what is it, NIMBY? Not in my backyard. You know, some parents wouldn't even acknowledge how they lost their child. Uh, but then there were those that did and that they needed somebody to lean on. They needed an outlet. You know, so again, under the sun will rise, you know, we created our own Grief group, you know what I mean? To try to prevent yep. other parents from feeling the way that we have, you know, and obviously you're aware of that because you're a big part of the sun will rise. And I just, I, Tony, I have to do something. I, I, I the individuals I work with now, it's, it's my son. It's my son sitting in front of me. I mean, these kids are around the same age. My son was, my son's forever 24. You know what I mean? He was 24 when he passed and, you know, we just do the best we can by others. It's been my theme, you know, especially after losing them. Yeah, when you tell your uh, clients, we'll call them, I guess, or the, the, the men that are in there, um, about your son passing, it, I w I'd assume that for some of them anyway, it, it, it sheds a strong light so that it does happen and it can happen, you know, and, and, um, I don't know. Sometimes it's, it's it, you really have to super bottom out before you turn a corner. Yeah. yeah, Tony, these are our teachers. You know what I mean? When there's a lesson to be learned. I mean, unfortunately, again, it's callous, but some have to die in order for others to live. You know, and you know, there's a picture of my son at the Charlestown House, one of the Gavin houses, Charlestown House in Charlestown, their recovery home. It's a big picture of him. You know, we do something in my son's memory every year. We raise, you know, several thousand dollars. And we have to put it in the petty cash draw, you know. And, of course, we have the opportunity to tell the story. You know what I mean? On what happened, what can happen. You know what I mean? If they don't keep their disease in the number one spot, addiction, keep it in front of them. What, what age was Michael when he died? 24. Just it was two weeks after his twenty fourth birthday. You know, he just you know, Tony. He just thought he can drink, and that's what you know opened it back up again. And of course, he's at that age, you know, where why can't I drink? He just didn't know what he was up against. You know, that's basically what it comes down to. And so he held on to that and drink drug dash consequences. Oh. You know? um. So the night he was he died, he was drinking, but then he went back to heroin or something strong and yeah, yeah, and combination. It, 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 it began, you know, like with me with marijuana and drinking the seven day. You know, I didn't know what my disease was going to progress to, but when you have that disease, you know, and again, you're not dealing with it and nurturing it and what you know, just taking care of it, then it's it's going to come back for you, you know. And uh, again, that just opened the door when. Booze just wasn't enough. And again, with my son's issue was the pain, the pain of breaking his back. And of course, you know, opiates are painkillers. So, oh, yeah. And opiates are yeah. And when it stops working, you take a higher dose. You know, that's, that seems to be the, the endless uh, direction that a lot of people end up going. Yeah. You know? And especially these days. You know, with that fentanyl and the stuff they're putting in drugs these days. We just had an overdose that two days ago, two or three days ago. I mean, this kid was inhaling it. Very first line he did, it killed him. You know, uh, literally two days ago. You know, so, you know, and again, Tony, just to sum that all up, I mean, that's why I'm all in. You know, it, if not, my attitude is if not me, then who? 
you know, who else is going to provide these services outside? You know, I'm a union longshoreman, union roofer my entire life. I would have never guessed that as I'm nearing retirement age, maybe someday I'll be lucky enough to retire, even though I love what I do, uh, is that, you know, this is God's work. This is service work, you know, trying to prevent, again, another individual from from making the mistakes that I've made, that my son made, unfortunately. Sorry about that. Yeah, it's okay. Shows you that you're a popular guy. Everybody's looking for you. Fortunately, I was looking for somewhere to hide so I could, I could avoid those incoming calls. <laughs> yeah. I get it. Um, well, you know, in, in Charlestown, you say it's changed now. It's a, it's kind of, is it becoming a yuppie town or something like that? Or? Wow. Most people wouldn't even know what a yuppie or a toonie was, you know. But yes, yes. And, and, and it's been a good change. And, you know, um, I actually work, uh, you know, I'm on several. I wear several different hats. I'm sorry, outside of the Gavin. You know, I'm on the Bunker Hill Associates, the Charleston Neighborhood Trauma Team, you know, uh, you know, Grief Council, a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of these branches were siloed, you know, until some of us came in and say, listen, let's come together and how can we best, you know, take this on, you know, by, you know, talking about prevention, respond, like everything, Tony, you know, and, and it's been enlightening over the last couple of years. Because people, again, people didn't know what what they simply didn't know, you know. And, of course, um, this disease doesn't discriminate, as you know. And uh, educating people, uh, you know, about, number one, what they're up against, but letting them know that there's a way out and there are resources available. So, again, that's why I've chosen to devote my life to it you know, in my son's memory, you know, and it's hard. I cry myself to sleep. I, I literally keep a shrine of him. Some people, you know, are okay to move beyond it and take down items and pitches and donate clothes and everything else. I can't, I just haven't found it in me eight years later to be able to do so. So every day I simply ask a prayer, you know, son, who can I help today in your memory? Yeah. Yeah. I have a memory chest, and on his memory chest is uh, several photos, probably eight to ten. And inside the memory chest is his baseball uniform and his football uniform. And I have, uh, at the time he was in high school, they, they did a big poster with him making a tackle, and it was like a he was the all-defensive player on the team, made the all-star team. And so they got a picture of him. He was a nose guard making a pic, you know. And, of course, he was light. He was only he was only 200 pounds. And he was playing opposite guys 300 pounds just all the time. And, um, and those were 300 pounds guys who weren't that, weren't that quick or good. But, but when he got into college, the 300-pound guys were weightlifters, and they were pretty intense, you know, and all of a sudden things were changing. And because of his reputation, they double teamed him a lot. So he ended up getting a neck injury. And the neck injury is what caused him to get a prescription to opioids. And he got a prescription of oxycodone at the time. And I filled it, which to this day, I never forget that because I never questioned what it was. And I understand why parents don't question doctors, you know. And I have a big sign that says my... Um, my son's drug dealer wore a lab coat, mm. you know, because he was, we, we took the doctor's belief and advice. And of course the doctor was brainwashed by Richard Sackler from Purdue Farmer. And, yeah. and um, we, most of us know the story, but some parents still don't know that story. And if their kid gets an injury in high school and, and we have a bill at the house in the state house. And, and right now that we're trying to get passed, We'd like to just get it to come to a vote um, where if you're 18 or younger and you get a prescription for an opioid, your parent has to sign off on it. And I think this is a very uh, a very good bill. I 
I helped write it originally, and now I've got six uh, representatives across the state who signed off on it. And we still, and Maura Healy said she would sign it into into Lars if it ever gets put on her desk. So, and we got all things going for us, but I still takes care of the naive parents who don't understand that, you know, and they, the biggest problem was as a bereavement facilitator is I've seen people, I asked parents, I said, how did your child get hooked on opioids? When did they start? And I asked that question to everybody. And they said, now that I think of it, they got their first prescription of Percocets when they had their wisdom teeth taken out. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was off to the races just for the wisdom teeth. Yeah. And I've talked to several dentists. I actually played baseball with a few. And I said, told them, I said, are you still prescribing Percocets? And he says, oh, my people, my, 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 my patients aren't like those kids that get hooked on drugs, you know. And I've said, oh, yeah, you, you know that for a fact. You know that your, your patients won't have a problem, haven't taken an opioid and that wouldn't get addicted on it. Because how and how and why do you know that? Just because why they come from nice neighborhoods or what, exactly. what's the deal? They got insurance, yep. you know, right. and um, I'm, I go after them all the time. I said, you're part of the problem right now. You know, we need you to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Amen. As long as you keep prescribing Percocets and for wisdom teeth or any kind of oral surgery, you know, I have an oral surgeon. In fact, I'm having surgery tomorrow, actually getting a post put in. And my, my oral surgeon will, will never give me a prescription for an opioid, even if I asked for it. I wouldn't ask for it anyway, but I'm just saying that, you know, he made that clear to me, not knowing who I was or any of my history. Right. You know, in the beginning, he says, you know, we don't do opioids here, so don't expect anything. You know, you're going to do ibuprofen and ice, and you're going to get along just fine. I said, yeah, and that's what I've, I've done, and I've got along just fine. Exactly. You know, so. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I personally have stage four cancer, chemo, radiation, you know, and everything that I've gone through, I've flagged myself personally that I can't, you know what I mean? My body doesn't know the difference between an C, you know what I mean, an Excedrin or an Oxycontin or an Oxycodone or whatever it is. But, Tony, you know, you brought up a few good points. Now, first of all, I didn't realize how similar our, our stories were, you know, um, until I met you at the grief conference and how, you know, our son's journey began with a pain injury, you know, into addiction. I mean, I'm sorry, a sports injury, sports and pain injury. Um, yep. You know, and, and, and the whole story behind the doctors and everything. And, you know, I, I'd like to add my brother, my brother, Jim, my brother, James, James Kane, you know, he's a, he's a serviceman, you know, union longshoreman, business owner. Um, did very well in his life, raised four kids. Um, mental illness, depression, you know, but couldn't put a label on it because, you know, he's a man and, you know, he didn't really want to take on that jacket of being clinically depressed or whatever it was. But he had a stroke, you know, and uh, and his, his, his thought was, you know, it's a brain injury. You know, he's paralyzed. Is that he refused to look up to people. You know, I'm not going to be looking up to people. Like once he plateaued from this ball to rehab and he knew that he would never really walk again, you know, and if he did, I, you know, he wouldn't walk the same or anything. He, uh, he made the decision to use his pain medications as his way out. You know what I mean? He intentional suicidal overdose on pain medicine, you know what I mean? Percocets and everything else that, the doctors would just drop on his lap. He would, you know, overdose, you know, several other suicide attempts. They would place a duffel bag full of the same medications that almost killed him and place a duffel bag on his lap and wheel him outside of the hospital doors, you know. But the one thing that I think is important in all this, Tony, is look at the work that you're doing now. Look at the awards you're receiving, talk, you know, you're receiving, your station is receiving, talking about this, you know, and, and and again, you having the opportunity, you know, to, to to light a candle to like what's going on, Tony. I feel it's our responsibility. And look at what you're choosing to do in your son's memory. You know, as a result, especially over these last couple of years. I mean, again, oh, I yeah. feel, 
we have an obligation. So. Yeah, I used to be on a different station and I did a sports talk show and uh, about every fourth week, we'd spend an hour on talking about injuries and making people aware, making parents aware that we're listening to the show. But we, we had more kids listening to the show because they like to hear their name. They have a great week, you know, and they scored a couple of touchdowns and stuff. And we, we would go over the highlights of the different games and they want to hear their name. And then we'd bring them in and have, we'd interview them. Yeah. But at the same time, when I knew what I was doing, I was making, I was educating them all, you know, and then at the end of the year, we had a football banquet where we brought in all the kids from all the different towns on the South shore. And literally we had a lot. I mean, we have 400 kids there and I would take half an hour and go over it with them to make sure they all understood, you know, that yeah. you get a prescription for something, find out what it is, you know, don't just don't, Assume that, you know, that you need it just because somebody's prescribing it, you know. Exactly. I, they're human beings, too, and they're motivated by different things. And some of them were told one thing, and then they finally, and later they're being told another thing. So, you know, it's like the times have changed. You know, the days of my son getting a prescription for 100 opioids and at one prescription, they, they gave him a pill bottle of 100 three or four a day for 30 days as needed. As you know, needed. Yeah, that, that's actually what it, it's what it says on the bottle, as needed. Exactly. You know, so and, instead and, of the one every four hours, you know, you get a little more pain, you take them for every one hour, like, you know. and You could do whatever you wanted because you got the whole bottle, you know. Exactly, you know. And then sure enough, he never had enough, so he would go out on the street. I don't oh, know how yes. he ever did. He was a good salesman. He always seemed to make enough money so that he could buy the pills at a dollar a gram or something. So he was always yeah. doing that. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, he worked for my company. He was a top salesman. And that was what he, he lived a lot longer than after the football injury. He, he went on 20 years with the addiction problem in and out of rehab for 20 years. Yeah. So it's. So that, that's, I, uh, I never, I'm sorry, pardon the interruption. Like I would have never imagined as I'm sitting at Gillette Stadium. You know, Gillette Stadium, Trinus Burns All-Star Game, or at his Super Bowl at Bentley College, you know, that yeah. fast forward a few short years, his teammates and his coach would be piling into his wake in his funeral with his team uniform on. You know, one of them that was cut from his back because he sustained a shoulder injury. You know, this is obviously yeah. all after, you know, his original – Injury, but Tony, you know, again, you're telling the story now. You know, I personally went to schools and nothing bothers me more. And I and I try to keep it real, Tony. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna pull any punches or hold anything back, you know, letting these children know what they're up against. Um, as you know, to see some children putting their heads on their desk and crying because they know what they're up against at home, you know, that that they, they, they that they are aware. And again, they, you know. When is it too young? You know what I mean to educate, especially you know the youth of today. I mean, again, Tony. I mean, look at it. Uh, you know as well as I do that overdoses is a leading cause of death with men between the ages of 24 and 49. That's insane. Not car accidents, not heart disease. Overdoses. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's becoming like the leading cause of death. And so. What, what bothers me right along that same thing, men between 50 and 65 who have children who have died from an overdose, leading cause of death is suicide. Wow. So I need to emphasize to anybody listening to us, get into the grief group. You know, forget about ego and stigma and all of those things. Just do what's best for you. Get into the grief group. Allow and talk Yeah, just talk about it with, with, with your peers. I mean, I'm gonna be on a on a grief group tonight. And it's gonna be men who have lost, you know, children due to substance use disorder, and it's all men. You know, they're out there, you know. I should uh, jump with you, Tony, I know, and, and hang that attitude on the shelf, like allow yourself to be vulnerable. Because That's the only correct. Way 
you're, the only way you're going to work is to work your way through this, through your process of grief, is by connecting and communicating. You know, I, that's I, right. That's that. I find that to be the most important thing, allowing an opportunity to vent. And, and Tony, what I've also found is that the more I speak of my lost son, the closer I draw him near. Like I seem to think of him. I keep his memory alive and. By speaking of him, I feel as though he's in the room with me. Every time I do a grief, you know, every time I facilitate a grief, you know, so. taking him along with you as you go through life. Of course, my my, my co-pilot, right, co-pilot companion, yeah. and that's the way. And I and I always say good night to my son every night before I go to bed. I check out those pictures and say good night to him, and it's hard. They're going through the holiday is really hard. And that's what, I, again, I try to emphasize to men that have issues where they've lost a child or women. It doesn't matter whether it's men or women. Women are more apt to go out and find a grief group than men are. But mm -hmm. um, if 2,000 people died in Massachusetts last year of an overdose, that's, that means there's 2,000 parents probably um, who have lost a child that where are these parents? Because there's not there's not a hundred men in the grief groups, and that's over time, not in one year, but over time. There's only there's probably not a hundred men in the grief group in Massachusetts right now. Exactly, yeah. and that's bad. That's bad that they're trying to carry it along, you know. And sometimes they're probably having flares of of anger coming out of them, you know, and and different things are bothering them. Their 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 families are getting torn apart because nobody's taking it and dealing with it, you know, and looking at it and trying to, and just facing the facts, you know, that's what, that's what it's about. And, of course, and it's, it's hard, it's hard, but you have to kind of, you have to work at it. There were no directions. We were never told, you know, that this is what we were in for, you know? Um, no. But of course, you know, individual therapy, counseling, uh, you know, there is, there's, there's relief, you know, and it's only by releasing it, you know what I mean? Sharing it with peers that are experiencing the same thing. And geez, I tell you, you know, when you, until you do it, you don't know what you're missing, you know? And again, what works for some may not work for others. I just know based on my experience, my upbringing, my childhood, it's, it's not something we did. You know, I'm a cast iron marshmallow. I'm not going to let anybody in. I don't talk about the way I feel. Until I did, Tom. Until I learned how to. You know, and it's got to begin somewhere. You know, the first step is the doorstep. Allowing yourself to be vulnerable, to just take a chance. If you, you don't enjoy, you're not going to enjoy it because it's a grief group. I mean, right. Let me re rephrase that. It's, you know why you're there, you know, and, and, what, you can be comfortable. You can be comfortable with these people because they're going through the same thing you're going through. Exactly. What's and the that's and that's that's the, the thing, you know. And they, you know, the people are not alone. There's there's a, lots in the same boat, and you just got again. And I, I, my grief group from my when I was a facilitator, I had 18 people in my group, a very big group. It's on the lower South Shore, and um, we've stayed together. It's been four years and we probably have gone out to dinner six times a year. Some make it and some don't, but we, and overall, they, everybody stays together. On, we have a, a network on Messenger and everybody, if somebody has a problem, somebody, we give them support. For mm -hmm. Relative, if someone dies, we all go to the wake. You know, it's, it's just the thing we do because we've all bonded now. And that's the way it'll be until... Life's end, you know. Of course, so we yeah. turn the corner. Sharing happy and sad stories, sharing memes, you know, you know, creating a your own messenger, whatever app you're using. Yeah, you know, uh, my ours is like a groupie chat, but allowing all your members to just communicate with each other on a regular basis. You know, uh, yeah, it's you know, it's key. It's. A huge part. I mean, we we're 
we're about seven years into it. And, you know, I, I also want to remind people that are listening that it's not, you know, individualized or compartmentalized. I mean, there are grief groups for siblings, grandparents, you know, men, you know, it's just men, you know, so, so it's not, you know, by tapping into this, this will open the door to other forms of treatment or specific, you know, grief groups or, or trauma right. tr treatment, you know. And we explored all tone, you know, you spoke of anger and like, we don't know what, what we're up against. You know, we may have heard of the seven stages, but what does that really involve and how does it come out, you know? And that's that's some of the stuff that we talk about. Yeah, everybody, everybody's different, and some people would disagree with the seven-stage philosophy. But, but you do go. You know, the, the the first year, obviously, it's disbelief. You know, that's and and then sometimes it becomes anger because you don't understand the the people who don't understand that it's a disease. You wouldn't be angry at your son or daughter if they had they had heart disease. You know, so why would you be angry if they have substance use disease? Exactly. You know, it's uh, it's it's the same same thing. You know, so um, can't. And um, somebody was just telling me the other day, if somebody having a relapse, if I have a relapse with cancer, I don't get put in prison. But if I have a relapse with drugs and I break my my probation, I get put in prison. You know, the, the, this whole society is a little upside down right now. It's they, only yeah, it's getting better. Believe it, it is. or not, I'm, I'm telling you from experience, I've been doing this work for 10 years now. You know, and uh, yeah. well, even more so after my son's death eight and a half years ago. But, man, things are changing. You know, they are leading right. in the direction of support, finally. I agree. I mean, I have a, I, I work with a lot of sheriffs in different counties. And they're doing they're, they're doing rehab in prison, in the county prisons. And then they're not only doing that, but they're helping them get a job when they get out. And they're finding yeah. halfway houses for them to live in. And um, it, it can be good. It can be good. And it can get better and better. And I, there's another company, uh, another group of guys up in the North Shore who have a From Prison to Prosperity is the name of their group. Mm -hmm. And they get, they actually get, houses for people and they not only they don't rent them they buy them they find government houses that they can buy and they, after they get a job they get them into, into a house and several of them own property now it's it's amazing you know if again and again it's the group working together they all talk it over and they understand and one tells the other one how it happened and how it worked and you got a grant or you got this and, and it's and um so there is hope that's what the point is that there is hope for if somebody is an addict right now. We have, there's a lot of hope, a lot of resources that we can push them or work them into. And as long as they're willing to come along and, and help themselves a little bit too, you know, so we can nudge them, but we got to, they got to kind of want to do it. It's not always yeah. easy, you know, but no, yeah, I know you are correct. So Michael, we're just about out of time. Would you say, would there be one thing that I didn't ask you that you want to leave as the, as your farewell message? I'm just thinking about the last few things you said, Tony, and, you know, addressing someone's most basic of human needs, you know, providing shelter, among other things. And that, you know, that that's crucial. But um, no, Tony, the only thing I could add is that there is help. You know, there is hope, and just like the name of your program here. Uh, you know, why, why choose to live in the darkness? You know what I mean? When, when, when there is light, you know, it's, again, I, I watch the souls that are recovering now, you know, that are doing well. They have their first real job or whatever the case may do, but they're, they're doing well. You know, this is a life completely different to the different to the ones they've led. But I mean, life's a blessing. You know, and, and and again, I appreciate the fact that individuals like you and I are able to shed some light and 
you know, to provide some support and whatever it is that, you know, even with simply what you and I are doing, you know, grief groups and everything else. So I appreciate you, Tony. And again, thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. And this is Tony LaGrecker, and this is The Courage to Hope. And I want to thank everybody for listening. Until next time.